You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Bowery Boys episode 355. The Midnight Adventures of Dr. Parkhurst. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers with a story of law and order and upright citizens and Good Christian morals, <laughs> or perhaps um, a lack thereof. Because we are going to Sin City, the New York underworld of the 1890s. The saloons, the dance halls, the opium dens, prostitution houses, and groggeries of old New York. Depicted in the sensationalist media of the day as sort of an urban Hades, a hellish landscape of vice and debauchery. Yes, a hellish landscape that had it been set in the 1990s, not the 1890s, uh, Greg, we probably would have been part of. This story is all about, you know, fabulous music on a crowded dance floor, cocktails, cocktails of dubious quality, (laughs) boys with pretty faces and rouged cheeks. Well, our tour guides into this underworld aren't famous DJs or or nightlife celebrities. It's a private detective and one of New York's most respected ministers, Dr. Charles Parkhurst of the Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. But Dr. Parkhurst's journey into New York nightlife in early March of 1892 wasn't necessarily intended to castigate the partygoers. In fact, quite incredibly, as you'll see, he joined right in. The point was to expose police corruption and New York law enforcement's willingness to look the other way at illegal behavior and decrepit social situations. This two-week dive into New York's most sinful establishments was actually meant to expose the hold of corrupt law enforcement over the powerless. And along the way, Parkhurst and his detective companion, Charles Gardner, would document many aspects of New York after dark, uh, which would culminate in a truly bizarre literary document of their journey. The 1894 book, The Doctor and the Devil, The Midnight Adventures of Dr. Parkhurst. And perhaps unwisely, we'll be using that book as a little bit of a travel guide. It's our beta current to the underworld here. So, in fact, follow me as we enter into a saloon at 96 Cherry Street. Dr. Parkhurst hesitated in a manner that showed that he was surprised at what he saw. A square room with a bar at one side of it. Behind the bar was a most truculent-looking ruffian. Over in one corner was a man playing a waltz from a wheezy old accordion. Around the floor were whirling half a dozen men and women. The men were sailors, laborers, thieves, shoestring gamblers, and the class of wretches that live upon the horrible earnings of the women who frequent the resort. Nearly everybody was drunk. Male and females, smoking cigars and cigarettes as they danced and all hurried to the bar at frequent intervals. 
you're stopping just as it's getting good. <laughs> We're getting there. Can you tell us, though, a little bit about this Dr. Parkhurst character? Who is this odd fellow? Well, clearly, as we can infer from the passage you just read, um, he is the well-respected and admired, serious and pious minister of the Madison Square Presbyterian Church. Well, for the benefit of our listeners here, can we explain how he got into this specific situation? (laughs) How he wound up in this dive bar. Mm -hmm. Well, let's rewind a couple of weeks because something big went down in his church about two weeks before this first big night out on the town. See, Parkhurst, who was also a prominent social reformer, and he was very involved in anti-corruption causes in New York. He, in fact, was the president of the Society for the Prevention of Crime. On Sunday, February 14th, two weeks before this, he had preached a sermon that sent shockwaves through New York. Parkhurst was 49 years old at the time. He was a studious, serious man. He was from Framingham, Massachusetts. Um, He studied at Amherst. He had served as a high school principal and then as a minister back in Massachusetts. And it was then in 1880 that, that he had landed the rather posh position as the minister at the Madison Square Presbyterian Church. So then here in February of 1892, on this Sunday in his church, in this sermon that caused such a stir, he had lashed out at the sin that surrounded the church and that that permeated the, the rapidly growing city at the time. He railed against the bars that served on Sunday, the, the houses of ill repute, and most shockingly, he railed against the elected officials in City Hall, including Tammany Hall, which was the political machine that ran the city and paid off politicians, and and worst of all, the police department that didn't enforced the laws and shut these places down, but rather cashed in and took payouts and and actually protected all of these houses of vice. Wow. Well, that's certainly a lot to pack into one sermon. That's like no (laughs) sermon that I've ever heard in church. It took guts. And we should mention that Tammany Hall, you know, in back in the 1870s, back with the downfall of Boss Tweed, they themselves had lost a lot of power. But mm-hmm. between that point and right now, 1892, they kind of clawed their way back into prominence and pr- were pretty much controlling most aspects of the city. And by this time in the 1890s, millions of immigrants had already landed in New York, many of them staying. And the city was rapidly, of course, expanding north with more than a million and a half people living on Manhattan Island. And the most densely populated neighborhoods are still downtown and, of course, packed into the tenements on the Lower East Side. And what was Madison Square Park like at this time in the early 1890s? Well, it had opened about 45 years before our story in 1847. So by 1892... Uh, It was really in full swing with the the swanky Fifth Avenue Hotel anchoring its western side, right? Well, Madison Square Garden, the second iteration of the giant arena and performance space, had opened at the northeast corner of the square in 1890. So by this time, the 1890s, this area would have been buzzing day and night, like an entertainment district and a social center. That's right. Yeah, it was actually the main theater district. Theaters were were creeping up, you know, from here up Broadway. Uh, But there were many around the square. And there were many restaurants, of course, in this area. Delmonico's was packing them in, you know, at Fifth Avenue and 26th Street. Just one block west of that then, Ladies Mile was the shopping destination for department stores conveniently located along that rattling 6th Avenue elevated. And so this church, the Madison Square Presbyterian Church, was obviously located in the middle of all this action as well, right? Yes, uh, located right on the park at the southeast corner of East 24th and Madison. Uh, It was a Gothic revival church. It was designed by architect Richard Upjohn's son, Richard M. Upjohn. This church not to get ahead of ourselves, but it would later be demolished in 1909 to allow for the construction of the 700-foot-tall MetLife Tower, you know, the the MetLife Tower Mm -hmm. on Madison Mm -hmm. Square Park. So that's the location. So on this Sunday in February, he railed, you know, against corruption in City Hall, Tammany Hall, Tammany's boss, Richard Croker, 
and the police who protected and profited off of all of it. He said, quote, There is not a form under which the devil disguises himself that so perplexes us in our efforts or so bewilders us in the devising of our schemes as the polluted harpies that, under the pretense of governing the city, are feeding day and night on its quivering vitals. They are a lying, perjured, rum-soaked, and libidinous lot. He was claiming that the police were actually getting paid off by bars who stayed open later than they were allowed to, and including serving on Sunday, which was illegal at the time, and that the police were getting percentages of the profits that were made in illegal gambling dens, and they were being handed fistfuls of cash by the owners of brothels. And he called out the mayor and his administration all the way up to District Attorney Nickel, accusing them of nothing less than manufacturing criminals. As luck would have it, a reporter was in the congregation from Pulitzer's New York World, and the paper covered the sermon in detail the next day. The reaction was intense, and it was markedly anti-Parkhurst, because politicians and city officials, other newspapers, they all kind of piled on and rallied against Dr. Parkhurst, Mm. because they accused him of everything. They accused him of, of lying, of slandering all of these prominent people, And also, they kind of accused him of vulgarity, you know, for even bringing up these issues and these these sins inside a church. It's true, though. He had made some really ambitious claims about some pretty prominent people in the community. So I can kind of understand the blowback that he's getting here. Yeah, and the district attorney, Nickel, was really annoyed by the charge, you know, that he and others in positions of authority were essentially profiting off of crime, and they decided to take action. So nine days later, on February 23rd, Nickel called Parkhurst in before a grand jury, and he asked him to present evidence for his charges. Ultimately, Dr. Parkhurst couldn't produce any evidence. You know, he didn't have firsthand knowledge that the police or the Tammany or the politicians were actually corrupt and profiting off the crime. He knew that that was the case. You know, he was, after all, the president of the Society for the Prevention of Crime. So he knew all about these crimes, but he couldn't actually produce any actual evidence to the grand jury. He couldn't back up these supposed wild claims. With actual evidence. And the grand jury then was was pretty harsh in their decision that Parkhurst had actually been quite reckless in making these accusations without evidence. The New York Times reported on March 2nd with a headline, Dr. Parkhurst is rebuked. The grand jury disapproves of his famous sermon. It declares that he had no facts on which to base his charges against public officials. So what Parkhurst decides is that he needs to go get some evidence himself, right? He needs to back up his own claims for the good of his own reputation and, and of course, for the good of the city. But how exactly is a famous minister going to just peruse the darkest corners of the New York underworld, you know, with a pad and pencil gathering evidence, right? He needs a tour guide of sorts. Now, Tom, perhaps this is a business opportunity for Bowery Boys walks that we could get into. The (laughs) tours of uh, nightlife debauchery. Why don't you and I take that offline, Greg, and we'll we'll workshop the idea. (laughs) Sounds like a good idea. Maybe we'll lead it. But anyway, in the case of Parkhurst, he turned to a detective named Charles Gardner, who agreed to take Parkhurst on a journey through some of these lowly places for for several nights in early March. And they wouldn't be alone. So it's it's not just the two of them here. For a little extra security and also testimony, you know, because they needed proof. They needed witnesses, right? Cooperation. Yeah. yeah. So a third man would join them for much of the ride, a man named John Irving, who was a parishioner, the son of well-to-do parents of social standing. He was also a a strapping blonde 
by all accounts, a well-dressed lounger who sometimes went by the nickname Sunbeam. (laughs) If that gives you some idea as to his personality. This story just keeps getting better. So Dr. Parker's Detective Gardner Mm -hmm. and Sunbeam... Mm-hmm. Uh, will be our will be our three protagonists here. Yes. When do they set forth into the underworld? Well, the they start on March fifth, eighteen ninety two. However, when Gardner arrives to pick up Doctor Parkhurst from his home up on East Thirty Third Street, he finds actually that both the minister and his blonde companion here were not attired for the gutter. Let's just say. To quote from Gardner's book, The Doctor and the Devil, Dr. Parkhurst's coat was cut in ministerial fashion. The trousers had a very aroma of the pulpit about them, unquote. And our sunbeam here was actually even worse. Quote, did you ever see a dandy dressed up in his last year's suit? He looked like the fashion plate of a dead year, just a bit run to seed. And so, uh, Detective Gardner here brought the two men to his home in Chelsea, where he kind of re-outfitted them in more proper kind of slumming outfits. Well, for Parkhurst, Gardner gave him a black and white checked trousers and an oversized jacket, tied the sleeve of a red flannel shirt around his neck, and tapped on a dirty brown hat. To complete the look, to quote from Gardner, I procured a bar of common laundry soap and rubbed it on the doctor's luxuriant hair, which curled enticingly down his neck, unquote, which was like an old gang look that made him look more like a tough. And then as for Sunbeam here, he wore a shirt that, quote, had missed an engagement at the laundry two months previous, and his hair was thoroughly mussed for, quote, If he was found to part his hair in the middle where we were going, I knew there would be trouble. Okay, so now the trio is ready. Uh, They're in Gardner's Chelsea apartment. Again, this all sounds so familiar. And then they're ready to head out right on the town. Where do you even start in the 1890s? Where did they go? (laughs) Well, for the very first night of their adventures, they would jump aboard the Third Avenue elevated train head downtown, and then devote themselves to exploring a precinct, well, that is today the South Street Seaport area, and an area slightly north of that, actually. So they're down on the East River waterfront, kind of near uh, the the Brooklyn Bridge approach, the, the Brooklyn Bridge, which was up and running. It was the remnants of an infamous neighborhood known as Cherry Hill, or as Gardner describes, quote, It is a place where nightly, bleeding men reel out of alleyways and fall senseless in the street, and no one even takes a passing glance at them, and such a little thing as hitting a man over the head with an axe does not even excite passing comment. It really is the fashion to do that sort of thing in Cherry Hill. Well, their first stop was 33 Cherry Street to the saloon of Tom Summers. This place was a genuine den of thieves. Gardner introduced Parkhurst and Irving here as family members from South Carolina. So to blend in, you can't just like pop in to kind of give them some credence. You know, they had to take a big swig of whiskey in front of the proprietor, or maybe I should say something like whiskey. Gardner said, quote, I watched the doctor pour down the drink. I smiled as I saw the tears start in the doctor's eyes. He acted as if he had swallowed a whole political parade, torchlights and all, unquote. So they're kind of like kicking it off here with a shot of whiskey, right? It just does sort of beg the question, How is he planning to conduct himself? Is he going to be drinking his way through this whole expedition? And what does that that mean? Well, Tom, on this night and in nights to come, these men will be shaming the angels with their behavior. I guess it's all research. It's all research. Yeah. You know, but he was also here to observe. And while they were at Summer's Saloon here, they did witness some shocking scenes. According to Gardner, quote, 
The doctor watched curiously as little girls and boys not more than 10 years of age buy whiskey and beer in bottles, pans, tin cans, and pitchers. If you want, you can buy a pint bottle of what is called whiskey for 10 cents. Well, after this sight, they drank one more round, and then they headed out again, this time to a dance hall at 96 Cherry Street. Oh, the saloon that you had started reading about at the very beginning of the show, the one with the wheezy old accordion? <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, quote, around the floor were whirling half a dozen men and women, smoking cigars and cigarettes as they danced and all hurried to the bar at frequent intervals. Well, our trio here eventually got into the act as well. And in fact, Parkhurst was acting a bit like a, quote, thirsty veteran, according to Gardner. Meanwhile, Irving took to the dance floor of this wild dance hall with a confident young woman who displayed dance moves quite unfamiliar to the ballrooms of Fifth Avenue. The dancing and the debauchery continued into the night. Parkhurst attended to the charms of two women who he kept buying drinks for. It was a dizzying stew of merriment and flirtation. And all the while, Parkhurst was taking notes of the environment, of the debauchery, and of the fallen souls in his company. What time is it at this point? Where are we in this night? It is two in the morning now when, of course, everything and everyone is at their inebriated height. So next, our party here was taken to a most infamous place, the East River Hotel. Now, one year ago today, I recorded uh, a show for the Bowery Boys called Has Jack the Ripper Come to mm -hmm. Town? That's episode 312. Regarding the murder of an old woman named Carrie Brown, who was nicknamed Old Shakespeare, and a crime that was so gruesome that many thought it was perpetrated by Jack the Ripper himself. Now, that murder took place at the East River Hotel, less than a year from the moment that Parkhurst and his companions entered the hotel now. To quote Gardner, there is no necessity for any subterfuge about the East River Hotel. When you enter the resort, everybody about knows that you are there for vicious purposes, and concealment of vice is an unknown virtue in that part of New York, unquote. Now, the bar here had even more inferior liquors and, and even sold stale beer, which is the dregs of other beer barrels, sold it for a cheaper price. But Parkhurst noticed that two policemen were there in full uniform. Gardner quickly took down the numbers off their badges. The trio then stepped into the back of the room, which was divided into stalls, almost as though it were a stable. But in these stalls were women. Now, this was an arrangement, believe it or not, that was quite common in New York nightlife during this period. To quote from Luke Sante's book, Low Life, the majority of dives featured one or another variation of the basic setup. Bar, dance floor, private boxes, prostitution, robbery. And indeed, that was sort of the setup here at the East River Hotel. Now, as I mentioned in last year's Jack the Ripper show, the women who pursued sex work here in this neighborhood on the waterfront were often quite destitute and attempting to work to avoid the workhouse. They faced great physical abuse and were often exploited, often by law enforcement themselves. And in a way, Parkhurst himself had ulterior motives beyond the well-being of these particular women that they met that night. Dr. Parkhurst bought everyone a round of five-cent whiskey. So that's for 16 people, pretty much most of the people in the bar at this time. As Parkhurst is feeding these people liquor, though, he's judging them and condescending to them. Yet even with tankers of booze in him, he's still focused on the bigger picture here. As Gardner dragged the men out, finally, after, you know, a much to do here, Parkhurst began to drunkenly sermonize on the street, quote, 
Here is a city which is now waking up to begin its daily toil for millions of dollars. Just one tithe of the money and energy to be thrown away today in this race for wealth would turn this hellhole we are in into a decent place. And mind you, this Saturnalia of crime tonight is going on right under the eyes of the police. Parkhurst wanted to end the night by observing people in the neighborhood at rest. Okay, that's getting creepy. I would say the trio then does something that's actually quite invasive, and they go and visit a couple lodging houses where for just five or ten cents a night, depending on the place, a man can, you know, find room and board for the evening. Now, one house at 223 Park Row provided a very startling sight for these men. A filthy, horribly smelling room crammed with old cots, each with a sleeping man, kept broilingly hot from two raging iron stoves. Quote, the smell, that of a charnel house, unquote. What is a charnel house? Charnel house is a vault or a building where human skeletal remains are stored in a cemetery or a church. So obviously a grim scene that, you know, men of working age here, mostly immigrant men, faced in this lodging house. Overcrowded, dangerous, and bleak. And yet, as Parkhurst noted, these men will vote for the very political power which keeps them confined to these dismal quarters. In particular, the power of Tammany Hall. Now, I'm sorry, but there's no way to really know that. You know, it's very cynical for him to make this Mm -hmm. sweeping statement looking in a room of working men as they're sleeping. But he's not necessarily here for the care and benefit of these troubled souls individually. He's here to bring down the whole system. And so then fleeing this lodging house into the streets where the sun is now rising I'm assuming and hoping that Parkhurst and his companions headed home to bed. In the morning, Parkhurst would awaken, quote, with a taste in his mouth as if he had accidentally swallowed a morgue. But that, of course, did not discourage him from further adventures into the New York night. No, on the contrary, it only whet his appetite for more adventures and more evidence collecting to come. We'll get to more Midnight Adventures with Dr. Parkhurst after this. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Ever been to Delaware? If not, now is the time to visit. You'll find a lot of fun in a little state. Since you can drive anywhere in the state in a couple of hours, you'll spend less time driving and more time enjoying. Explore from the bays to the beaches, stroll the boardwalks, and have an Oceanside bonfire. Get a taste of Delaware at one of the award-winning restaurants and enjoy a local craft brew. See the first state's unique historic landmarks and experience Delaware's endless discoveries. Plan your adventure today at visitdelaware.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So, Greg, we left uh, the story in the wee hours of March 6th because they had they had headed out on March 5th, which Mm -hmm. was a Saturday night. Naturally, now it is Sunday morning. Don't forget, he was a minister. He had to preach a sermon a couple hours later. We're not really sure what he preached about. I'm not even sure if he was sure what he was preaching about. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I think we know what he must have felt like, and it ain't pretty. But he didn't tell his congregation, no. did he? He couldn't. He couldn't spill the beans on like his secret plan here. I think it would be kind of hard, you know, to explain to your faithful flock, you know, that you had just spent the evening carousing down on Water Street dives and Cherry Street brothels. And that, again, does kind of underscore the tricky issue that he was, in exploring all of this and collecting evidence, also engaging in this behavior. It introduces this kind of moral ambiguity to the whole story. So did he go out that night then? No, he took Sunday night off to kind of recover a bit, you know, and rest up. So then they continued on Monday night then? Yes, two nights later. On, on Monday, March 7th, they were back and they were headed for Chinatown, uh, where they were accompanied by an interpreter named Li Bing, who was an acquaintance of Gardner's and who showed them around. Bing took them to dinner at 11 Mott Street, a restaurant that they referred to as the, quote, Chinese Delmonico's. There's some comedy about them fumbling with chopsticks. And then they continued on with their slumming. They hit up some Chinese gambling parlors before Dr. Parkhurst inquired about visiting an opium den because he'd he'd heard that an estimated 30,000 New Yorkers had an opium habit and he wanted to see it all in action. Gardner writes, quote, Li Bing led the way to a half-tumbled-down building in Doyer Street, where after we had stumbled along a dark hallway, we gained admittance to an inner room after he had muttered what was possibly a password to a tall man who answered his knock. The room was in semi-darkness, and when our eyes became accustomed to the gloom, I saw we were in a room about 30 by 60 feet in dimensions. The room was quite well fitted up. On the floor, which was uncarpeted, were a couple of dozen rugs and pillows. I noticed that each pillow was as white as the falling snow. Here and there were cots, also rug-covered, and with pillows on them. But what struck Dr. Parkhurst the most was the absolute silence in the room. We stood perfectly still, and there was absolutely no noise. At last, Dr. Parkhurst moved and broke the spell. A cloud of acrid blue smoke hung about us and made our eyes smart. Through its feathery sheets, we could see a dozen forms, all in the thrall of the opium demon. In the immediate foreground of this strange picture lay a startling group. One was a Chinese man, flat on his back. His half-open eyes were lusterless, but he was happy as any king for he lay drowned in the sensual sloth of a terrible narcotic that takes the senses in its grasp and with iron hand dulls them. Pillowed with her head on this man's shoulder was a woman. She was young and quite prepossessing. She too was in an opium stupor. On the other side of her lay a Chinese lad, not more than eight years of age, I should say. He too was drowned in the fumes of the drug. The trio were all one family, I learned. The lad was their child, and the family was enjoying an evening of pleasure, just as you would take your wife and boy to a theater. So if Parkhurst is standing in a room where a bunch of people mm -hmm. are using opium and smoking opium, then wouldn't you conclude that he's also getting high from it? It sounds to me like he wasn't in any particular hurry to leave the room. Well, eventually they left, uh, and they made a quick stop on the Bowery in some gambling resorts, and then they headed off to Mulberry Bend in Little Italy. They, they visited another stale beer dive at 39 Mulberry, where they saw poor patrons, you know, sitting on the floor, playing cards and drinking two-cent cans of beer. Essentially board games and drink specials. Well, except in this case, Parkhurst, their group almost inadvertently started a fight inside because some of the patrons thought that Parkhurst was actually going to treat them to a round of drinks. Things got kind of ugly, and so they, they scrammed. Now, a while later, the same group then would head back down off to the Bowery, where they would hit some nightclubs, uh, which were called Concert Gardens. 
The first stop was at 27 Bowery, a place called the Windsor Concert Hall. This place was described by Gardner as about 35 feet by 100 feet in dimension. There was a stage that was set up at one end, and the waitresses would hop up, sing a song, and then once finished, they'd go back down and keep serving drinks. The performers would then visit the tables and also flirt and make customers kind of feel more comfortable, you know, and in, and in doing so, kind of encourage them to order more rounds of drinks. Parkhurst and Gardner and Irving ended up ordering rounds of brandy for them and then for three women who quickly joined them at their table. And then it, it sounds like it just turned into like round after round, just like throwing back brandies. Gardner does state that he wanted to get Parkhurst drunk, but for educational purposes. He wrote, quote, You see, I did not want the doctor to lose any chance of experiencing how one feels after consuming a quantity of Bowery brandy, beer, and whiskey. Because as long as the liquor was paid for, he really didn't care whether we bolted it or drank the stuff. So the idea was to get Parkhurst drunk for research purposes. I mean, I use that excuse all the time. (laughs) And from there, they went a couple blocks away to a, quote, tight house on Bayard Street. A tight house where you get tight or you wear tights. Uh, Gardner explains, quote, Outwardly, it is a house of apparent respectability. It is a three-story brick house with green blinds and... If it was not for the red shades over the front door transom, would attract no great attention. The fact, too, that bold-faced painted women hung out of the windows and chirped merrily as crickets to passers-by made the house belie its looks. We were ushered into a large square room where there was a set of cheap furniture. On the walls were several risque photographs of supposedly comic scenes. The resort was a favorite one for U.S. soldiers. There was a party of the soldiers from Fort Hamilton there, and they were dancing with a bevy of girls dressed in tights. I asked one of the girls why she wore such a costume. In case of fire, she replied. There are no fire escapes on the house, and it won't take me long to dress. So yes, here at the tight house, the the women wore tights and not much else. From there, it was off to a German brothel a couple blocks away on Forsyth Street, then to Elizabeth Street, where there were more than a dozen women who tried to lure them into another brothel. And by the way, that brothel specialized in serving the police community because it was located near the police headquarters. And so it went on and on until they finally, blessedly, retired for the night. But even Parkhurst would have his limits here. I know that sounds hard to believe, You know, he seemed fascinated, even amused by all of this stuff, by scenes of female sex workers and men in various states of sobriety, as long as those men acted within acceptable standards of masculinity. But a different sight greeted him on another evening in Greenwich Village at 133rd West 3rd Street at a place called the Golden Rule Pleasure Club. The Golden Rule Pleasure Club? So the minister is heading to the Golden Rule yes. <laughs> Pleasure Club, which is certainly a, um, a rule that I'm sure he was familiar with. He probably could have recited it. Yes, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But probably not an adage he wished to practice at this secret club, where Uh-oh. ideas of gender were more fluid. The basement was fitted up into little rooms by means of cheap partition, which ran to the top of the ceiling from the floor. In each room sat a youth whose face was painted, eyebrows blackened, and whose airs were those of a young girl. Each person talked in a high falsetto voice and called the others by women's names." Now, what the doctor and his companions had stumbled into was a world that he was very unequipped to understand. New York's thriving queer community of the late 19th century. He was in the heart, actually, of what we might call the gay or LGBT scene today, using modern parlance. 
here in Greenwich Village. Around the corner, in fact, on Bleecker Street was The Slide, another, quote, fairy resort, as they called them, which was packed nightly with people of all different types. And it's not surprising to learn that saloons of this type needed extra protection and were only kept open by substantial bribes to the beat police. But they were quite popular and apparently very lucrative or else the, you know, the proprietors wouldn't have even risked keeping these types of places open. And the same actually goes to bars in the area that catered to black patrons and to mixed clientele, you know, sometimes called black and tans. And so throw in some gambling dens and some other types of saloons, and these were the night streets of the village. Yes, all of those places in the village, and on top of it, also, of course, plenty of prostitution. And Bleecker Street was very well known for this line of work. In fact, the there was an area that was referred to as Frenchtown, perhaps for its French residents or perhaps just for its many brothels. Well, one night, Parkhurst and his companions stopped by a house of prostitution that was owned by a woman named Maria Andrea, a house, I should add, that was being guarded by, by a uniformed police officer with a billy club. Now, inside, Maria Andrea asked the men if they would like to see the, quote, French circus for $5 a piece. Well, the men managed to talk her down to $4 for this unusual display. She then promptly called, quote, a bevy of young and decidedly pretty French women who wore Mother Hubbard costumes or loose dresses of silk and gray satin. Maria then directed the men to pick out one woman in particular. The other women hastily left the room. And then, we don't know. To quote from Gardner, I cannot tell you what happened. And no matter what you may think personally about Dr. Parkhurst's society, you would agree with me that it has done a splendid work in clearing New York of this place alone if you had seen what I did, what Dr. Parkhurst saw in that infamous house of vileness. By Friday... Dr. Parkhurst was really curious about the extent to which vice reached the doorsteps of his church. And for that, he and his cohorts visited another brothel, this one rather upscale, and located at 29 and 31 East 27th Street, just three blocks north of the church between Park and Madison. This house of ill repute was run by a woman named Hattie Adams. Now that night, Before heading to Adam's house, uh, before they met up with Parkhurst even, Detective Gardner and Irving realized that they were being followed by detectives. And they concluded, or surmised, that the police department was actually, by this point, onto their mission, and would perhaps also try to trap them in some manner. You know, perhaps the police would actually raid a place while Dr. Parkhurst was inside, And that could obviously lead to all kinds of embarrassment. I mean, that would be career-ending for Dr. Parkhurst, obviously, to be caught, you know, with his pants down, figuratively. Yes, and it would be, you know, a way of saving face for the police department who knew that they were about to be exposed. So that's happening at the same time, then, that our trio arrives at the home of Hattie Adams around 11.30 at night. Gardner writes... We were met in the hall of the house by Hattie Adams herself. She led the way to a rear parlor, and then she called seven or eight young women into it. Dr. Parker sat near the door and smiled when the girls came in. This is a rather bright company, he said blandly. He talked, you see, just about in the manner in which he would speak to a Sunday school full of young ladies, not knowing any worse. I arranged for the subsequent dance of nature, as it was called by Hattie Adams, of five girls at a cost of $15 or $3 for each gymnast dancer. 
Gardner continues to describe how then the women disrobed and how he he had to blindfold the professor, quote-unquote, the piano player, as the girls claimed to be too modest to dance in front of him. Then the five women, to a lively jig played by the professor, danced the can-can. They high-kicked, kicking hats held six feet off the ground. Young Irving danced with the women. And then, then came the celebrated leapfrog episode, in which I was the frog, and the others jumped over me. The doctor sat in the corner with an unmoved face through it all, watching us and slowly sipping at a glass of beer. Hattie Adams was quite anxious to find out who Dr. Parkhurst was. I told her that he was from the West and was a gay boy. Then Hattie tried to pull Dr. Parkhurst's whiskers, but the doctor straightened out with an air of dignity that she did not attempt any further familiarities. Immediately after the dance was over, the girls left the room and we left the house. Come again, said Hattie Adams, smilingly, as we left. After that, he returned home for the night. Uh, He was done with his carousing, while the other two continued on with their research. Just how much more evidence did they need to collect by this point? Well, you know, they hadn't hit up every neighborhood, and they were still taking down addresses. You know, consider that in the Tenderloin, um, Gardner writes that he himself visited 25 houses of ill repute in one day, okay? Which included, he gives the addresses in the book, it includes almost every house on one of the blocks of West 31st Street and West 32nd. I mean, it's like all of them were brothels. And in addition to this, they they hired four detectives to investigate bars that were serving on Sunday or serving beer to on-duty policemen. And this, they, they found 254 saloons that were violating those laws. And they also counted nearly 2,500 people who were drinking on Sunday. And really, his whole point here was that it was impossible, right, to sort of reconcile that these four detectives on their own could find hundreds of saloons that were operating illegally, but the entire police force of 3,000 police officers couldn't find one example officially. Something here was clearly not right. So Parkhurst and these detectives had collected a mountain of evidence by this point, illustrating all of the illegal behavior and vice on display in the New York nightlife. But what exactly were they going to do with all this information? They, they couldn't go to the police with it, obviously. Parkhurst was planning to take it back to his congregation, which he did when he presented it as evidence in his sermon the following Sunday on March 14th, 1892. And naturally, you know, they had all arranged for journalists to be present for this big sermon. The Times the next day declared on its front page, Dr. Parker speaks out. Another scathing arraignment of city officials. A great throng hears his startling story. Vice flourishing under the protection of those who should suppress it. And they report that the place was jam-packed with people. There were, in fact, another 2,000 people spilling out of the church and into the streets who weren't able to get inside. Wow, it sounds like a bigger show than anything at Madison Square Garden. Actually, the Times reports that had they held the sermon at Madison Square Garden, there would have been overflow crowd there as well. Wow. (laughs) But Parkhurst, in his sermon, proceeded to rail against Tammany and the police. And then he introduced his own evidence right there. He exhibited lists of bars that operated on Sundays of illegal gambling dens and dozens of brothels that they visited. And he stated in his sermon, quote, one of these places... I spent an hour in myself, and I know perfectly well what it all means. And that house is three blocks only from the spot where I am standing now. That sermon made a sensation. According to the Times, quote, When the congregation began to depart after the benediction had been pronounced, hundreds moved forward to shake hands with the preacher, but he avoided anything like a reception by going into his study. 
groups of men and women discussed the sermon around the church for an hour afterward. What was key about what he had accomplished? Like, what was different about this than his sermon, you know, two weeks before, or really any of the work that his society had done, is that really this was a fact-finding mission. And after each mission, the party that he was with, they all signed legal affidavits. In fact, this book is filled mm-hmm. with affidavits, the, the book that Gardner wrote, The Doctor and the Devil, attributing to the truth of all of these events. By close inspection and blending in as much as they could, I suppose, they were able to get names and locations of low-rung criminals, and many of the people that you know, we have introduced in the story today were promptly arrested, including the madams, Marie Andrea and Hattie Adams. And I'm sure that their cases, Andrea's and, and Hattie Adams, got a lot of attention in the press, right, because of Parkhurst. Yeah, the trials were obviously quite publicized, which is actually a ploy by the police to discredit and embarrass Parkhurst. Some people took the stand and actually accused Parkhurst of organizing some of these events in the houses of ill repute. That Parkhurst and Gardner had, according to the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, quote, persuaded the girls to disrobe and go through a performance that they termed a circus, unquote. This is all just such a, it's all such a nasty business, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I suppose that Parkhurst would be successful here in clearing his name, but what about the other people? Did any good, did any positive reform come out of this? Anything good come out of this? Well, it's complicated. Uh, there would be a reckoning uh, in the New York Police Department that would follow in the wake of Parkhurst's debaucherous adventures here eventually leading to a full exposure of the force's many corruptions, and you know, not just in the nightlife, but in many, many other places, and eventually to a major state investigation starting in 1894 via the Lexo Committee. And all of this would lead to a temporary, once again, a temporary fall from grace for Tammany Hall in municipal politics and the installation then of a new reform police commissioner in 1895, a man named Theodore Roosevelt. And then sort of on a grander scale, if you were even to step back even further, Parkhurst even pretends the birth of the entire progressive era, which was a period of massive social political reform in America. Sure. Okay. Parkhurst might have had these grand intentions of, you know, reform and exposing corruption, but did he have any actual empathy for the people involved here, the people who were sort of collateral damage? Well, you know, that's it's obviously hard to say from our perspective today, but I don't think that we should be thinking of Parkhurst necessarily as a hero here, not like we would, say, like Jacob Rees, the journalist and social reformer who published the book How the Other Half Lives, just a couple years before these events. Reese actually advised Parkhurst during the trial here, and I'd, I'd say it's perhaps a better example of what the progressive era would eventually develop into, going into a more empathetic direction through individuals like Roosevelt or Lillian Wald and institutions like the Henry Street Settlement. So whatever happened to... Dr. Parkhurst and to Detective Gardner. Well, Gardner himself was accused of pimping out his own wife for prostitution just months later. Oh. He was even charged with the crime and then thrown into the tombs prison. But it was most likely a setup orchestrated by Tammany Hall as a way to get back to him, like he was vulnerable. And his case was then eventually reversed. He was freed, but he was broke and his reputation was ruined. Charles Henry Parkhurst continued at the Madison Square Presbyterian Church and, and oversaw other kinds of moral crusades, including one, Tom, in 1904 against saloon pool rooms. He was against pool, Tom, the billiards. 
Was he against all kinds of fun? Was he going to take on charades next? <laughs> he would have taken down the video game industry had they been around. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, well, anyway, in 1908, he resigned as the head of the Society for the Prevention of Crime, and then 10 years later, retired from the church. Parkhurst died on September 9th, 1933, in Atlantic City, where he ended up living. He died tragically by sleepwalking off the roof. I'm sorry, what did you say? Uh, yeah, the, uh, the headline from his New York Times obit in 1933. Reformer 91, a somnambulist, plunges from porch roof of New Jersey home. He was 91 years of age. And then, but wait, uh, Greg, whatever happened to Sunbeam? Well, John Langston Irving, our little Sunbeam here, uh, he served in the Spanish-American War and actually became a rancher out in Santa Barbara, California, where he got lots of Sunbeams. Irving also died in the year 1933. Now, if you want to see what these individuals looked like, we might be able to find some photographs, but we will also have many of the illustrations from this book and other books from this era, and we will post them on our website, BarryBoysHistory.com, where we'll have other information and other stories about New York City history. That is BarryBoysHistory.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, on Instagram, and Twitter at BarryBoys. If you like this show, this sort of topic in this era, Greg, you mentioned we have a show, or you recorded a show last year, episode 312 on Jack the Ripper. We also did a show, number 251, on McGurk's Suicide Hall, uh, the, the Bowery's most notorious dive. And we talk more about the Lexo Committee in that show and give, I think, a little bit more context about what was happening specifically on the Bowery during this period. A huge thank you to our patrons who have joined us on Patreon.com with their small monthly contributions. It's because of you, our sustaining listeners, that we are able to make the Bowery Boys full-time. It is our full-time jobs. We couldn't do it without you. You can find out more and join the great group that's there at Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bowery Boys. And you will see that by joining, uh, you're given access to audio extras. We have one called the Bowery Boys Movie Club, where we look at movies that were shot in New York or take place in New York City, break them down together. And one called The Takeout, where we talk about things sort of ancillary to the show that we've just recorded. And Greg and I will be recording a takeout for this particular episode because there's so much to talk about. <laughs> yes, we'll be dropping that in your Patreon feeds early next week. So check that out. We'd also like to give a big Barry Boys thank you and shout out to Cassidy H. and Shilpa G. from Manhattan, David B. from Brooklyn, Bill in Chicago, and additional patrons, Tracy R., Sybil G., Susan S., and Willow S. Thank you all for supporting the Barry Boys podcast. And if you're looking for something fun to do in the coming days and weeks, uh, join us as well on BoweryBoysWalks.com. We have all kinds of fun virtual walks that are taking place, including tours about the hidden history of Greenwich Village, the West Village musical tour, another Ghosts of the Elevated Railroad, and more. Plus, mark your calendars because Greg and I are joining our tour guide and food historian, Carl Raymond on April 13th for a very special Gilded Age Table event. We'll get into it more in an upcoming show, but it's April 13th. Tickets will be available soon. And let's just say that halfway through, we'll be stopping the tour to raise a glass uh, with a Gilded Age-themed cocktail. So keep that date, April 13th, 2021, and join us. So thank you very much for joining us on these Midnight Adventures with Tom with me, and with Dr. Parkhurst. And with Sunbeam. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for joining us. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. I'll see you real soon.
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.